Chapter Six of New Treasure Seekers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. New Treasure Seekers by Edith Nesbit. Chapter Six: The Intrepid Explorer and His Lieutenant. We had spectacles to play antiquaries in and the rims were vaselined to prevent rust, and it came off on our faces with other kinds of dirt, and when the antiquary game was over, Mrs. Redhouse helped us to wash it off with all the thoroughness of aunts, and far more gentleness. Then, clean, and with our hairs brushed, we were led from the bathroom to the banqueting hall, or dining room. It is a very beautiful house. The girls thought it was bare, but Oswald likes bareness because it leaves more room for games. All the furniture was of agreeable shapes and colors, and so were all the things on the table, glasses and dishes and everything. Oswald politely said how nice everything was. The lunch was a blissful dream of perfect A-oneness, tongue and nuts and apples and oranges and candied fruits and ginger wine in tiny glasses that Noel said were fairy goblets. Everybody drank everybody else's health, and Noel told Mrs. Redhouse just how lovely she was, and he would have paper and pencil and write her a poem for her very own. I will not put it in here, because Mr. Redhouse is an author himself, and he might want to use it in some of his books and the writer of these pages has been taught to think of others, and besides, I expect you are jolly well sick of Noel's poetry. There was no restrainingness about that lunch. As far as a married lady can possibly be a regular brick, Mrs. Redhouse is one. And Mr. Redhouse is not half bad, and knows how to talk about interesting things like sieges and cricket and foreign postage stamps. Even poets think of things sometimes, and it was Noel who said directly he had finished his poetry, "'Have you got a secret staircase? And have you explored your house properly?' "'Yes, we have,' said that well-behaved and unusual lady, Mrs. Redhouse. "'But you haven't. You may, if you like. Go anywhere,' she added with the unexpected magnificence of a really noble heart. Look at everything. Only don't make hay. Off with you, or words to that effect. And the whole of us, with proper thanks, offed with us instantly, in case she should change her mind. I will not describe the red house to you, because perhaps you do not care about a house having three staircases, and more cupboards and odd corners than we'd ever seen before and great attics with beams, and enormous drawers on rollers let into the wall, and half the rooms not furnished, and those that were all with old-looking, interesting furniture. There was something about that furniture that even the present author can't describe, as though any of it might have secret drawers or panels, even the chairs. It was all beautiful and mysterious in the deepest degree. When we had been all over the house several times, we thought about the cellars. There was only one servant in the kitchen, so we saw Mr. and Mrs. Redhouse must be poor but honest, like we used to be. And we said to her, How do you do? We've got leave to go wherever we like, and please, where are the cellars, and may we go in? 
She was quite nice, though she seemed to think there was an awful lot of us. <laughs> People often think this. She said, Lor, love a duck. Yes, I suppose so, in not ungentle tones, and showed us. I don't think we should ever have found the way from the house into the cellar by ourselves. There was a wide shelf in the scullery with a row of gentlemanly boots on it that had been cleaned, and on the floor in front a piece of wood. The general servant, for such indeed she proved to be, lifted up the wood and opened a little door under the shelf, and there was the beginning of steps, and the entrance to them was half trap-door and half the upright kind, a thing none of us had ever seen before. She gave us a candle-end, and we pressed forward to the dark unknown. The stair was of stone, arched overhead like churches, and it twisted most unlike other cellar stairs, and when we got down it was all arched like vaults, very cobwebby. "'Just the place for crimes,' said Dicky. There was a beer cellar, and a wine cellar with bins, and a keeping cellar with hooks in the ceiling, and stone shelves, just right for venison pasties and haunches of the same swift animal. Then we opened a door, and there was a cellar with a well in it. To throw bodies down, no doubt, Oswald explained. They were cellars full of glory, and passages leading from one to the other like the Inquisition, and I wish ours at home were like them. There was a pile of beer barrels in the largest cellar, and it was H.O. who said, Why not play King of the Castle? So we did. We had a most refreshing game. It was exactly like Denny to be the one who slipped down behind the barrels and did not break a single one of all his legs or arms. No, he cried in answer to our anxious inquiries. I'm not hurt a bit. But the wall here feels soft. At least not soft, but it doesn't scratch your nails like stone does. So perhaps it's the door of a secret dungeon or something like that. "'Good old dentist,' replied Oswald, who always liked Denny to have ideas of his own, because it was us who taught him the folly of white mousishness. "'It might be,' he went on, "'but these barrels are as heavy as lead, and much more awkward to collar hold of.' "'Couldn't we get in some other way?' Alice said. "'There ought to be a subterranean passage. I expect there is, if we only knew.' Oswald has an enormous geographical bump in his head. He said, Look here, that far cellar where the wall doesn't go quite up to the roof, that space we made out was under the dining room. I could creep under there. I believe it leads into behind this door. Get me out! Oh, do get me out and let me come! shouted the barrel-imprisoned dentist from the unseen regions near the door. So we got him out by Oswald lying flat on his front on the top barrel, and the dentist clawed himself up by Oswald's hands, while the others kept hold of the boots of the representative of the house of Bastable, which, of course, Oswald is, whenever father is not there. "'Come on!' cried Oswald, when Danny was at last able to appear, very cobwebby and black. "'Give us what's left of the matches!' The others agreed to stand by the barrels and answer our knocking on the door if we ever got there. 
"'But I dare say we shall perish on the way,' said Oswald, hopefully. So we started. The other cellar was easily found by the ingenious and geography bump-headed Oswald. It opened straight on to the moat, and we think it was a boathouse in middle-aged times. Denny made a back for Oswald, who led the way, and then he turned round and hauled up his inexperienced but rapidly improving follower on to the top of the wall that did not go quite up to the roof. "'It is like coal mines,' he said, beginning to crawl on hands and knees over what felt like very prickly beach. "'Only we've no picks or shovels.' "'And no Sir Humphrey Davy safety lamps,' said Denny, in sadness. "'Oh, they wouldn't be any good,' said Oswald. "'They're only to protect the hard-working mining men against fire-damp and choke-damp, "'and there's none of those kinds here.' No, said Denny, the damp here is only just the common kind. Well, then, said Oswald, and they crawled a bit further, still on their furtive and unassuming stomachs. This is a very glorious adventure. It is, isn't it? inquired the dentist in breathlessness, when the young stomachs of the young explorers had bitten the dust for some yards further. Yes, said Oswald, encouraging the boy, and it's your find, too he added with admirable fairness and justice, unusual in one so young. I only hope we shan't find a moldering skeleton buried alive behind that door when we get to it. Come on, what are you stopping for now? he added kindly. Uh, it's, it's only cobwebs in my throat, Denny remarked, and he came on, though slower than before. Oswald, with his customary intrepid caution, was leading the way, and he paused every now and then to strike a match, because it was pitch dark, and at any moment the courageous leader might have tumbled into a well or a dungeon, or knocked his dauntless nose against something in the dark. "'It's all right for you,' he said to Denny, when he had happened to kick his follower in the eye. "'You've nothing to fear except my boots.' and whatever they do is accidental, and so it doesn't count. But I may be going straight into some trap that has been yawning for me for countless ages. Well, I won't come on so fast, thank you, said the dentist. I don't think you've kicked my eye out yet. So they went on and on, crampedly crawling on what I have mentioned before, and at last Oswald did not strike the next match carefully enough, and with the suddenness of a falling star his hands, which, with his knees he was crawling on, went over the edge into infinite space, and his chest alone, catching sharply on the edge of the precipice, saved him from being hurled to the bottom of it. Halt! he cried, as soon as he had any breath again. But alas, it was too late. The dentist's nose had been too rapid, and had caught up with the boot-heel of the daring leader. This was very annoying to Oswald, and was not in the least his fault. "'Do keep your nose off my boots half a sec,' he remarked, but not crossly. "'I'll strike a match.' And he did, and by its weird and inscrutatious light looked down into the precipice. Its bottom transpired to be not much more than six feet below, so Oswald turned the other end of himself first hung by his hands, and dropped with fearless promptness, uninjured, in another cellar. He then helped Denny down. 
the cornery thing Denny happened to fall on could not have hurt him so much as he said. The light of the torch, I mean match, now revealed to the two bold and youthful youths another cellar with things in it, very dirty indeed, but of thrilling interest and unusual shapes. But the match went out before we could see exactly what the things were. The next match was the last but one, but Oswald was undismayed, whatever Denny may have been. He lighted it and looked hastily around. There was a door. Bang on that door! Over there, silly! he cried in cheering accents to his trusty lieutenant. Behind that thing that looks like a chevaux de frise. Denny had never been to Woolwich. And while Oswald was explaining what a chevaux de frise is, the match burnt his fingers almost to the bone, and he had to feel his way to the door and hammer on it yourself. The blows of the others from the other side were deafening. All was saved. It was the right door. "'Go and ask for candles and matches,' shouted the brave Oswald. "'Tell them there are all sorts of things in here.' a chevaux de frise of chair-legs, and—' "'A shovel of what?' asked Dicky's voice hollowly from the other side of the door. "'Freeze!' shouted Denny. "'I don't know what it means, but do get a candle and make them unbarricade the door. I don't want to go back the way we came.' He said something about Oswald's boots that he was sorry for afterwards, so I will not repeat it and I don't think the others heard, because of the noise the barrels made while they were being climbed over. This noise, however, was like balmy zephyrs compared to the noise the barrels insisted on making when D Dicky had collected some grown-ups and the barrels were being rolled away. During this thunder-like interval, Denny and Oswald were all the time in the pitch dark. They had lighted their last match, and by its flickering gleam we saw a long, large mangle. "'It's like a double coffin,' said Oswald as the match went out. "'You can take my arm if you like, dentist.' The dentist did, and then afterwards he said he only did it because he thought Oswald was frightened of the dark. "'It's only for a little while,' said Oswald, in the pauses of barrel thunder and I once read about two brothers confined for life in a cage so constructed that the unfortunate prisoners could neither sit, lie, nor stand in comfort. We can do all those things. Yes, said Denny, but I'd rather keep on standing if it's the same to you, Oswald. I don't like spiders. Not much, that is. You are right, said Oswald, with affable gentleness, and there might be toads, perhaps, in a vault like this or serpents guarding the treasure like in the cold lairs. But, of course, they couldn't have cobras in England. They'd have to put up with vipers, I suppose. <laughs> Denny shivered, and Oswald could feel him stand first on one leg and then on the other. "'I wish I could stand on neither of my legs for a bit,' he said. But Oswald answered firmly that this could not be. And then the door opened with a crack-crash, and we saw lights and faces through it, and something fell from the top of the door that Oswald really did think for one awful instant was a hideous mass of writhing serpents put there to guard the entrance. 
"'Like a sort of live booby-trap,' he explained, "'just the sort of thing a magician or a witch would have thought of doing. "'But it was only dust and cobwebs, a thick, damp mat of them. "'Then the others surged in, in light-hearted misunderstanding "'of the perils Oswald had led Dan Denny into, I mean through, "'with Mr. Redhouse and another gentleman, "'and loud voices and candles that dripped all over everybody's hands, "'as well as their clothes, "'and the solitary confinement of the gallant Oswald was at an end. "'Denny's solitary confinement was at an end, too, "'and he was now able to stand on both legs "'and to let go the arm of his leader, "'who was so full of fortitude. "'This is a fine,' said the pleased voice of Mr. Redhouse. "'Do you know we've been in this house six whole months and a bit, "'and we never thought of there being a door here?' "'Perhaps you don't often play King of the Castle,' said Dora politely. "'It is rather a rough game, I always think.' "'Well, curiously enough, we never have,' said Mr. Redhouse, "'beginning to lift out the chairs, "'in which avocation we all helped, of course.' "'Nansen is nothing to you. "'You ought to have a medal for daring explorations,' said the other gentleman. "'But nobody gave us one, and, of course, we did not want any reward for doing our duty, however tight and cobwebby. "'The cellars proved to be well stocked with spiders and old furniture, "'but no toads or snakes, which few, if any, regretted. "'Snakes are outcasts from human affection. "'Oswald pities them, of course.' There was a great lumpish thing in four parts that Mr. Redhouse said was a press, and a ripping settle, besides the chairs and some carved wood that Mr. Redhouse and his friend made out to be part of an old four-post bed. There was also a wooden thing like a box, with another box on it at one end, and H.O. said, "'You could make a ripping rabbit hutch out of that.' Oswald thought so himself." but Mr. Redhouse said he had other uses for it, and would bring it up later. It took us all that was left of the afternoon to get the things up the stairs into the kitchen. It was hard work, but we know all about the dignity of labor. The general hated the things we had so enterprisingly discovered. I suppose she knew who would have to clean them. "'but Mrs. Redhouse was awfully pleased and said we were dears. "'We were not very clean dears by the time our work was done, "'and when the other gentleman said, "'Won't you take a dish of tea under my humble roof?' "'The words, like this, were formed by more than one youthful voice. "'Well, if you would be happier in a partially cleansed state,' said Mr. Redhouse, and Mrs. Redhouse, who was my idea of a feudal lady in a castle, said, Oh, come along, let's go and partially clean ourselves. I'm dirtier than anybody, though I haven't explored a bit. I've often noticed that the more you admire things, the more they come off on you. So we all washed as much as we cared to, and went to tea at the gentleman's house, which was only a cottage, but very beautiful. He had been a war correspondent, and he knew a great many things, besides having books and books of pictures. It was a splendid party. We thanked Mrs. R. H. and everybody when it was time to go, and she kissed the girls and the little boys, and then she put her head on one side and looked at Oswald and said, I suppose you're too old 
Oswald did not like to say he was not. If kissed at all, he would prefer it being for some other reason than his being not too old for it. So he did not know what to say. But Noel chipped in with, "'You'll never be too old for it,' to Mrs. Redhouse, which seemed to Oswald most silly and unmeaning, because she was already much too old to be kissed by people unless she chose to begin it. But everyone seemed to think Noel had said something clever, and Oswald felt like a young ass. But Mrs. R. H. looked at him so kindly and held out her hand so queenly that, before he knew he meant to, he had kissed it like you do the queen's. Then, of course, Denny and Dickie went and did the same. Oswald wishes that the word kiss might never be spoken again in this world. Not that he minded kissing Mrs. Redhouse's hand in the least, especially as she seemed to think it was nice of him to. But the whole thing is such contemptible piffle. We were seen home by the gentleman who wasn't Mr. Redhouse, and he stood a glorious cab with a white horse who had a rolling eye from Blackheath Station. And so ended one of the most adventuring times we ever got out of a play beginning. The time ended as the author has pointed out, but not its resultingness. Thus we ever find it in life, the most unharmful things, thoroughly approved even by grown-ups, but too often lead to something quite different, and that no one can possibly approve of, not even yourself, when you come to think it over afterwards, like Noel and H.O. had to. It was but natural that the hearts of the young explorers should have dwelt fondly on everything underground, even drains, which was what made us read a book by Mr. Hugo all the next day. It is called The Miserables, in French, and the man in it, who is a splendid hero, though a convict and a robber and various other professions, escapes into a drain with great rats in it, and is miraculously restored to the light of day, unharmed by the kindly rodents. N.B. Rodents means rats. When we had finished all the part about drains, it was nearly dinner-time, and Noel said quite suddenly in the middle of a bite of mutton, "'The red house isn't nearly so red as ours is outside. Why should the cellars be so much cellarier?' "'Shut up, H.O.' for H.O. was trying to speak. Dora explained to him how we don't all have exactly the same blessings, but he didn't seem to see it. It doesn't seem like the way things happen in books, he said. In Walter Scott it wouldn't be like that, nor yet in Anthony Hope. I should think the rule would be the redder, the cellarier. If I was putting it into poetry, I should make our cellars have something much wonderfuller in them than just wooden things. H.O., if you don't shut up, I'll never let you be in anything again. "'There's that door you go down steps to,' said Dicky. "'We've never been in there. "'If Dora and I weren't going with Miss Blake to be fitted for boots, we might try that.' "'That's just what I was coming to.' "'Stow it, H.O. "'I felt just like cellars today while you other chaps were washing your hands for din. "'And it was very cold, but I made H.O. feel the same. "'And we went down, and that door isn't shut now. 
the intelligible reader may easily guess that we finished our dinner as quickly as we could, and we put on our outers, sympathizing with Dicky and Dora, who, owing to boots, were out of it, and we went into the garden. There are five steps down to that door. They were red brick when they began, but now they are green with age and mysteriousness and not being walked on, and to the bottom of them the door was, as Noel said, not fastened. We went in. It isn't beery, whiny cellars at all, Alice said. It's more like a robber's storehouse. Look there! We had got to the inner cellar, and there were heaps of carrots and other vegetables. Halt, my men, cried Oswald. Advance not an inch further. The bandits may lurk not a yard from you. "'Suppose they jump out on us,' said H.O. "'They will not rashly leap into the light,' said the discerning Oswald, and he went to fetch a new dark lantern of his that he had not had any chance of really using before. But someone had taken Oswald's secret matches, and then the beastly lantern wouldn't light for ever so long. But he thought it didn't matter his being rather a long time gone, because the others could pass the time in wondering whether anything would jump out on them, and if so, what, and when. So when he got back to the red steps and the open door and flashed his glorious bull's eye round, it was rather an annoying thing for there not to be a single other eye for it to flash into. Every one had vanished. "'Hello!' cried Oswald. And if his gallant voice trembled, he is not ashamed of it, because he knows about wells in cellars, and for an instant even he did not know what happened. But an answering hello came from beyond, and he hastened after the others. "'Look out!' said Alice. "'Don't tumble over that heap of bones!' Oswald did look out. Of course he would not wish to walk on anyone's bones. But he did not jump back with a scream, whatever Noel may say when he is in a temper." The heap really did look very like bones, partly covered with earth. Oswald was glad to learn that they were only parsnips. "'We waited as long as we could,' said Alice, "'but we thought perhaps you'd been collared for some little thing you'd forgotten all about doing, and wouldn't be able to come back. But we found Noel had, fortunately, got your matches. I'm so glad you weren't collared, Oswald, dear.' Some boys would have let Noel know about the matches, but Oswald didn't. The heaps of carrots and turnips and parsnips and things were not very interesting when you knew that they were not bleeding warriors or pilgrims' bones. And it was too cold to pretend for long with any comfort to the young pretenders. So Oswald said, "'Let's go out on the heath and play something warm. You can't warm yourself with matches, even if they're not your own.' That was all he said. A great hero would not stoop to argue about matches." And Alice said, All right, and she and Oswald went out and played pretending golf with some walking sticks of father's. But Noel and H.O. preferred to sit stuffily over the common room fire, so that Oswald and Alice, as well as Dora and Dicky, who were being measured for boots, were entirely out of the rest of what happened. And the author can only imagine the events that now occurred. When Noel and H.O. had roasted their legs by the fire till they were so hot that their stockings quite hurt them, one of them must have said to the other, I never knew which, 
Let's go and have another look at that cellar. The other, whoever it was, foolishly consented. So they went, and they took Oswald's dark lantern in his absence and without his leave. They found a hitherto unnoticed door behind the other one, and Noel says he said, We'd better not go in. H.O. says he said so too. But anyway, they did go in. They found themselves in a small vaulted place that we found out afterwards had been used for mushrooms. But it was long since any fair bud of a mushroom had blossomed in that dark retreat. The place had been cleaned and new shelves put up, and when Noel and H.O. saw what was on these shelves, the author is sure they turned pale, though they say not. For what they saw was coils and pots and wires, and one of them said, in a voice that must have trembled, It is dynamite. I am certain of it. What shall we do? I am certain, the other said. This is to blow up father because he took part in the Lewisham election and his side won. The reply, no doubt, was, There is no time for delay. We must act. We must cut the fuse, all the fuses. There are dozens. Oswald thinks it was not half bad business. Those two kids, for Noel is little more than one, owing to his poetry and his bronchitis, standing in the abode of dynamite and not screeching or running off to tell miss blake or the servants or anyone but just doing the right thing without any fuss i need hardly say it did not prove to be the right thing but they thought it was and oswald cannot think that you are really doing wrong if you really think you are doing right i hope you will understand this I believe the kids tried cutting the fuses with Dick's pocket knife that was in the pocket of his other clothes, but the fuses would not, no matter how little you trembled when you touched them. But at last, with scissors and the gas pliers, they cut every fuse. The fuses were long, twisty wire things covered with green wool like blind cords. Then Noel and H.O., and Oswald, for one, thinks it showed a goodish bit of pluck, and policemen have been made heroes for less. Got cans and cans of water from the tap by the greenhouse, and poured sluicing showers of the icy fluid in among the internal machinery of the dynamite arrangement, for so they believed it to be. Then, very wet, but feeling that they had saved their father and the house, they went and changed their clothes. I think they were a little stuck up about it, believing it to be an act unrivaled in devotedness, and they were most tiresome all the afternoon talking about their secret and not letting us know what it was. But when father came home early, as it happened, those swollen-headed, but in Oswald's opinion quite to be excused, kiddies learned the terrible truth. Of course, Oswald and Dicky would have known it once. If Noel and H.O. hadn't been so cocky about not telling us, we could have exposed the truth to them in all its uninteresting nature. I hope the reader will now prepare himself for a shock. In a wild whirl of darkness, and the gas being cut off, and not being able to get any light, and father saying all sorts of things, 
it all came out. Those coils and jars and wires in that cellar were not an infernal machine at all. It was, I know you will be very much surprised, it was the electric lights and bells that father had had put in while we were at the red house the day before. H.O. and Noel caught it very fully, and Oswald thinks this was one of the few occasions when my father was not as just as he meant to be. My uncle was not just either, but then it is much longer since he was a boy, so we must make excuses for him. We sent Mrs. Redhouse a Christmas card each. In spite of the trouble that her cellars had lured him into, Noel sent her a homemade one with an endless piece of his everlasting poetry on it, and next May she wrote and asked us to come and see her. We tried to be just, and we saw that it was not really her fault that Noel and H.O. had cut those electric wires, so we all went. But we did not take Albert Morrison, because he was fortunately away with an aged godparent of his mother's who writes tracts at Tunbridge Wells. The garden was all flowery and green, and Mr. and Mrs. Redhouse were nice and jolly, and we had a distinguished and first-class time. But would you believe it? That boxish thing in the cellar that H.O. wanted them to make a rabbit hutch of? Well, Mr. Redhouse had cleaned it and mended it, and Mrs. Redhouse took us up to the room where it was to let us look at it again. And unbelievable to relate, it turned out to have rockers, and someone in dark bygone ages seems, for reasons unknown to the present writer, to have wasted no end of carpentry and carving on it just to make it into a cradle. And what is more? Since we were there last, Mr. and Mrs. Redhouse had succeeded in obtaining a small but quite alive baby to put in it. I suppose they thought it was willful waste to have a cradle and no baby to use it. But it could so easily have been used for something else. It would have made a ripping rabbit hutch, and babies are far more trouble than rabbits to keep, and not nearly so profitable, I believe. End of chapter 6